Welcome to this Endo Life episode 94. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior and endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast isn't intended to replace your current medical treatment and is here for educational purposes only. As always, I want to thank our first sponsor today, BU. These guys are the makers of the incredible period patches that I love, and also a beautiful organic CBD range, menstrual cup, and chafing cream. And they really are one of the pioneers of natural and really quite revolutionary period care, in my opinion. I have seen these period patches change people's experience of their periods so dramatically and their experience of endometriosis so dramatically. And they are really one of the first things that I recommend to my clients if my clients are going through a flare-up or it's taken a while for their symptoms to calm down and for us to implement changes. I still want to provide my clients with something that's going to provide relief, you know, in that current moment. And I always recommend BU period patches because I just believe in them so much and they have helped me so much and they're natural and it's just when you are so commonly faced with all of these different drugs that can have side effects, um, they have their place, but sometimes you just want a more uh, side effect free option. So um, I absolutely love these patches. They've been helping me through a interstitial cystitis flare up that I've been going through recently. You can find out all about that on Instagram. <laughs> um, and if you want to try the BU patches for yourself, you can just head to the link in my show notes or go straight to their website, which is buonline.co.uk. So that's B-E-Y-O-U online.co.uk. If you are in the US or in Canada, you can actually also order your BU patches from Cult Beauty and they will ship to the US or to Canada. So that's cultbeauty.co.uk. Let me know how you get on with them. So thank you for um, bearing with me last week um, whilst I took a week off. I'm not, you guys get it, right? As people with chronic illnesses and usually multiple, as I'm kind of dealing with at the moment, you know, there's not people like, oh, do you feel better? And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you genuinely do. Like in the case of with endo, most of the time I'm I'm feeling better, but with IC, for example, I haven't really felt better with that for, um, I don't know, years. So um, I don't want to lie and say I'm feeling better, but I had 10 hours sleep last night or nine hours, something like that. So um, for sure today, I just feel more rested and more able to record this, um, this intro. So thank you for, yeah, just for waiting and um, some of you have sent nice messages, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I hope that um, me taking last week off shows you that firstly I'm not perfect and I still have my struggles and that healing isn't linear and that there are ups and downs in the journey and it's okay to stop. 
and I need to take that advice myself. <laughs> Remember, it's okay to stop. Um, as a perfectionist, it's a you know constant learning curve. Um, but enough about um, me. This week on the podcast, we have Dr. Joanne Michelle Martin. Joanne is a pelvic floor physiotherapist with a specialist interest in endometriosis and women's health. And we actually studied on the same endo course together, which I didn't realize and only discovered in the interview. So that was fun. And Joanne has been treating patients for 13 years now, and she's really come to notice the inequalities and inadequacies um, within women's pelvic health and just women's health in general, especially for black women. Often when women finally see Joanne, they've had years and years of dismissal from various doctors. And um, when they see her, it's usually the first time they've been heard and seen. And I think one of the reasons why it's so powerful for them is because um, Joanne is not just, you know, caring about their pelvic floor and paying attention to what's going on there, but she takes a really holistic approach and she is looking at their whole body, mind, soul, what's happening at home, you know, what's their nutrition like, what's happening in their gut, what are their levels of information like. So for most of us, that's a pretty revolutionary approach for a healthcare practitioner to take. Um, so in this episode, we discuss the disparities in healthcare for black women and what needs to change in the medical industry so that we can stamp out racism and finally have equality and the right treatment for everyone. We talk about how pelvic floor dysfunction can lead to worsening endometriosis pain even after surgery and how pelvic floor dysfunction and inflammation from endometriosis can affect the surrounding organs such as the bladder and the intestines and how that's all linked together. And we talk about why pain spreads over time and how it often worsens over time as well and the kind of mechanics behind that. And finally, we also talk about the exercises to avoid when we have endometriosis and pelvic floor dysfunction and also exercises that are a bit more pelvic floor friendly. This episode was such an interesting one and um, we had to hop off because Joanne had another call, but I could have spoken to her for ages, as I'm sure you can tell. Um, two things to note. Firstly, I recorded this on Monday, so it was only a couple of days after I took that day off. So my brain still wasn't 100% with it. And um, it took me about three minutes to realize I hadn't pressed record. So um, Joanne's like summary of her kind of story into healthcare is slightly clipped, but most of it is there. Um, and I think what we missed is that she was an athlete. And she first started working with, well, she wanted to first start working with athletes and doing kind of whole body physiotherapy, sports physiotherapy, et cetera. But then um, there's a more technical term for that. I'm sure there is. Um, but then she kept getting sent pregnant women and that sort of sparked her interest in women's health. So that's sort of what I missed there. Um, and secondly, something happened with the sound on my end. Um, and it seems to have stopped recording through the mic and was recording through my laptop, which sort of sits behind me when I'm podcasting. So um, the quality of my voice isn't as loud or as strong. So, um, yeah, apologies for that. 
it should be fine to listen to, but I just wanted to let you know um, that that is why I might sound a little bit funny. Um, Okay, so here is the episode. I hope you enjoy it. And of course, if you have any questions and you want to reach out to Joanne, her contacts, um, her Instagram, her Facebook, all of that jazz is in the show notes. I'd always worked with female athletes. So, uh, you know, I, I started to see a lot more correlation there. And then um, I also had worked um, adjacent to a trauma surgeon. And so what I was finding was orthopedically, I was, you know, I was able to help a lot of these women and most of them, but then there were some women who were, you know, victims of trauma, like physical trauma. And it's like, they would get 95% better. And that 5% would just nag me. And I'm like, what the heck? And, you know, but a lot of it, you know, if they're having pelvic fractures and they're having, um, you know, surgeries to pin the pelvis and things like that, you can understand that then there's going to be some soft tissue issues, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. And so um, that, that really started to intrigue me. And I think it was from there coupled with, you know, being pregnant with my first child that really set it in motion, um, even more than it already had been. Um, so then I, I was seeing women that, that way I was seeing women in the hospital cause I used to pick up hours in the hospital and I worked mother baby. Um, and so then, you know, it's like the dynamic, the, the musculoskeletal dynamic, the, you know, the labor and delivery dynamic and, and kind of seeing different things in different places, but it was all very intriguing. And I just decided to launch my pra- my own practice eventually, um, Partly, you know, as being a mom and, and wanting to have that autonomy and, and wanting to kind of create that that life that I need, that work-life balance that I couldn't get from, you know, from, from a regular job, um, but wanting to create that for myself, but then also being able to see the types of clients that I wanted to see, which was pelvic health clients. So that's kind of a roundabout way, but that's how I got into, that's how I kind of got into pelvic health. And then as as I started seeing more more patients, um, more and more, I was more intrigued by pelvic pain. Um, you know, everybody likes the pregnant women, everybody likes the postpartum clients, but I got to be very intrigued by um, pre- um, pelvic pain and a lot of the women who were having um, dyspronia, a lot of the women that were having more complex cases. Um, you know, and I love the fact that it's not just, it's hardly ever just their symptoms alone. It's, you know, they might come in and say, you know, I hurt. Okay. So tell me what else is going on, you know, because it's usually a cascade of, of other things. And then it's the psychosocial. And then it's like, you know, the, the belief systems, like, you know, I, I'm in a very conservative area. And so, you know, for example, I see a lot of young couples that are coming into me, women who are complaining of pain with intercourse but this is them now embarking on a journey of intimacy whereas they hadn't been before and this thing that was supposed to be so glorious and so magical is like a pain in the butt and they don't like it and they don't want to have sex and they're like if I don't do it my husband's gonna leave me and like so now there's all these different you know misconceptions um, and belief systems also tied into to that, um, along with the physical, along with the anxiety, along with, you know, any depression, change in relationships and all these different things. And I'm just so fascinated by how many different things can come together to create just this perfect storm, um, if you will. Yeah, so true. Did you 
like it sounds like you have a really holistic approach to your work mm-hmm. rather than just solely focusing on uh, the pelvic floor did you did you study with Dr. Jessica Drummond by any chance? I sure did. I did the endo. I'm a endo wellness coach. Um, oh, we did through. the same course. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And did you do the um, women's health coaching program as well? I didn't do the women's health coaching program. I've been going back and forth, but I did have a lot going on. So I didn't feel like I could fully commit to it um, when I first considered it, but I really want to. Okay, I thought there were some points that I was like, this sounds so, yeah, it sounds so familiar. So, um, yeah, I, such a good course. And I guess we were in the same cohort because... The one that just passed in, in December, like in the yeah. wintertime? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but maybe uh, we were on different course because of my time difference. Mm-hmm. I, so. I typically would do um, the Sunday if I could catch it or the Monday. Yeah, or I, the did, replay. I did the <laughs> Sunday, so... And I asked a lot of questions, so you probably you probably saw me. I was probably like to you like the annoying one. So I was you're like, that person yeah. in the replay videos. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh god, everyone's gonna be like this girl, such a Hermione Granger. But um, yeah, if it's any consolation, I love Hermione. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, people must hate me. Um, okay, brilliant. So you have like such a holistic approach, and yeah, I mean, you're so right. The it's. It's almost surprising, but yet also not because we know how it works, just how many mm-hmm. layers there are to um, to health and especially around pelvic pain. Um, so it's just wonderful to hear that you yeah, you take that approach. Um, yeah. And so you've been working in this field for, is it 15 years? Am I right? 13. 13. And so um, obviously we're at the time of recording we have the Black Lives Matter um, protests and there's a lot going on in the world. So um, I wanted to talk to you about as, you know, as your work as a healthcare practitioner and as a black woman, what have you noticed are the disparities within healthcare across treatment? And have you noticed that in like pelvic floor physiotherapy? Because that's something that I don't really know much about in terms of like you know, systemic racism within pelvic floor physiotherapy? Um, I don't know that it is within pelvic floor PT per se. What I will say is that across the board, there are a lot of disparities that are very noticeable, very rampant in our healthcare system. So I'm in the U.S. Um, they're very rampant in our healthcare system. Um, the least of which is not, I mean, or rather implicit bias, but I mean, you know, we've got the structural, we've, we've just the way our system is set up. We've got a lot of clinicians who still have this very antiquated way of thinking. Um, A study was done in 2016. I'm trying to remember the name because I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it, but it was called racial bias and pain assessment and treatment recommendations and false beliefs about biological differences between blacks and white. And they'd interviewed 200 um, med school students um, with regards to their beliefs on biological differences between blacks and whites, if there were any. And what they found was that a lot of the beliefs were held over from even like a lot of racial ideologies coming out of slavery and things like that. What they also found that was that, a, a, you know, for instance, um, they stated that 
you know, black people had thicker skin. You know, they assumed that black people didn't feel pain um, or, or couldn't feel pain. Um, and then they noted as a result of that, um, treatment interventions were not adequate for blacks versus whites based on these beliefs. Um, then you have the issue in the US here with maternal mortality rates. And the belief by most people is, well, they must be poor, they must be uneducated, or they must not have had any prenatal care. But even when we have accounted for socioeconomic status, when we've accounted for education, when we've accounted for prenatal care, we're still finding that Black women in the U.S. are four to five times more likely to die during birth than white women. So the numbers are pretty staggering. And, and, you know, it's a lot of the times people go unnoticed, people get brushed off. um, And this is happening constantly in society. Um, There's not a lot of, of, I don't believe, cultural competency among um, a lot of the healthcare systems and a lot of healthcare workers because most people's excuses, well, I just didn't know, which I find can't be used as an excuse anymore because if you're working in healthcare, it would behoove you to know, <laughs> you know, yeah. to, to learn, to get a clue. Um, so that's, that's kind of some of the things that are happening. With regards to pelvic floor therapy, Um, I think one of the issues that some people have mentioned is that there are a lot of, a lot of us as pelvic floor clinicians typically are cash, cash pay only. One of the reasons for that is when we see clients, we typically will see clients for an hour and a lot of other um, traditional orthopedic or musculoskeletal settings, that's not the case. They're seeing 30-minute sessions, you know, uh, you know, for m- most of the orthopedic conditions, there may be double booking, sometimes even triple booking in a lot of these other clinics. Then you can't do that when you're working with a pelvic client, especially when you're dealing with people with chronic pain issues. There, you, you need to give them your undivided attention. A lot of these people have not been heard before. So you can't just have them and like two other people, you know, and running back and forth between rooms. That's just not going to cut it. The, you know, they need to be heard. They, they've they been schlepped around from doctor to doctor, people telling them it's in their head or they don't know, or there's nothing going on, dismissing their, their, their questions, their fears, um, their concerns. And so, you know, when they finally get to the place that they've been told they need to go for help, we need to be focused. We need to be zoned in. I know a lot of my colleagues even do hour and a half evaluations, and I've done a few in the past if I've got clients that have a very complex history. You can't bill for that in a regular clinic. You know, like you, there's no clinic that will let you just sit with a patient for an hour and a half. <laughs> no outpatient um, orthopedic insurance-based clinic. And so a lot of clinicians end up going out on their own and the practices are cash-based but for some women that then becomes a barrier now there are some clinicians who have sliding skills in place may offer um, scholarships um, to, to help ease the burden of finances 
so that people can have access. But again, you know, it's a matter of you would have to check with those clinicians to see if they do. Um, so I think that those are some of the things that, that prohibit um, minorities, especially then we talk about those who are financially challenged, that would be something that would prohibit them from being able to seek pelvic care. What I do tell most women though, is when you look at your, the, the care that you're going to receive. And I like to talk to people about value. If you're going to go to a, a private pay clinician, you're probably not going to require as many visits. We typically will see clients once a week and oftentimes sessions are then tapered. So then you might go, you know, transition to every other week. Um, then you may be, depending on how well you're doing, it could be once a month just to check in, just to make sure that we're still, you know, doing whatever we need to do. Um, and so with that, you typically may not see a clinician for that many visits, again, versus some of the, the insurance-based practices that are seeing women twice a week, um, twice a week for 12 weeks. So when then when you look at visit count and overall cost, you know, it, ultimately it seems like a lot more on the front end, but long-term you end up spending way less more often than not when you see one of the private pay therapists than you would if you go with the insurance space. So. Yeah, it's, it's really complicated because um, obviously we, we just discovered we've done the same course. And <laughs> um, I think one thing that I have always found difficult because I um, my background was working with homeless young people was, you know, seeing real poverty and um, just, trying to work out how do we reach the communities that that need this kind of support but are on the you know at, on that poverty line um and in most cases could never access our kind of work and it's something that um in the beginning I did a lot of scholarships and then unwell myself and it's just trying to and I'm now designing um a, a coaching program that's like online like they go through it themselves that's much more you know affordable but it's that you know how how are we making these I guess they might seem niche I mean they do in the UK for example like in the UK the NHS I've never heard of an NHS practitioner recommending pelvic floor physiotherapy for endo or pelvic pain, like ever. Oh, wow. So um, I only ever heard of it like a couple of years ago when I started this podcast and a lot of US guests spoke about it. So you couldn't get like pelvic floor physiotherapy on the NHS without a fight over here for endo, for example. So it's it's complex trying to work out like, how we create this uh, a service that's inclusive for everyone um and it's so I'm, true it sorry to interrupt it's so true ahead. but I was gonna I was gonna say you know even even like you're creating a scholarship and like I said a lot of clinicians do sliding scale but even trying to access grants that would allow clinicians to be able to then offer those services either yes. very very low charge or no charge so that they can still in some semblance, you know, some way recoup the cost mm. of, of that, you know, it's very difficult to find. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, for you, what do you like, 
hopefully the world is I mean it seems like the world's now paying attention and, and hopefully it's not just going to be this one week or or two week trend hopefully this is the sign of real change what do you have like a vision of what you hope or how you hope healthcare will change in the future for one we need to but but I would think that as a healthcare practitioner that we I think we owe it to our patients. We said we got into this field to help people and we can't come into this field with baggage and biases. You know, you don't, when you see a patient, you don't, you don't know them from the next and it's up to you. They're depending on you. What decision you make or not, or don't make can really make or break this person, their life, their health. And, and we need to treat it as such. We need to treat it with the respect and the urgency that it, that it deserves because people don't deserve to just be brushed off or passed along or, or anything like that. You know, they have families that's someone's mother, sister, you know, friends, wife, you know, or whatever, or, in, you know, in the case of, of men, you know, same thing. And, and, and it, we really, really need to stop and, and just, start to be more present with patients. I can't tell you the amount of times working in the hospital setting that I've just seen patients be brushed aside. I remember I got so mad one time I was working with an older woman and she, you know, she was just, the fact that she was in the hospital and, and everything was going, it was just very overwhelming. She had a very supportive family. Her husband was amazing, you know, and I was, I happened to be working with her at the time the pulmonologist came in. And when he came in, he he didn't look at her, didn't look at the husband, kind of just, you know, like head down in his nose, like just breathing, like, you know, he's just going on and on and on, like two minutes. Then he turns around and he walks out. And I was like, hold a minute. I was like, did you get any of that? And she starts crying. Like she just breaks down. And I called him back and he was like, well, I have patients to go see. I said, right now, while you're in this room, that is your patient. And right now, your job is to make sure that she understands all that you just said, that she can make an informed decision, that she is comfortable and comforted. You don't get to walk out of here until you do that. That is your job. And she's just crying like she was just bawling. And I was so pissed because I was like, if this were your family member, you know, would you want them to be treated this way? But it happens all the time. Yeah, I just shared. Um a story last week and I think that to me really shows just how real this issue is um and I've not shared it for years and years like literally like I didn't know if I could legally share it I still don't know if I'm gonna get sued <laughs> but um I was working with a um a girl who had really severe pelvic pain and when I first met her she had like so this is before I was working in endometriosis, um, but I had been diagnosed with endometriosis and I was just starting to work in it um, as a volunteer. And um, she had a, she was a small girl and she had a huge stomach that looked like she was like, oh, honestly, wow. like eight months pregnant. And she felt that she had ovarian cancer and she was, oh, you know, like, really and she had a lot of issues going on um a lot of emotional issues and a kind of very big history and she was under like one of the best um nhs hospitals in in at least in london and um 
they just didn't believe her and um they it was you know we went back and forth and they actually ended up saying it was psychosomatic and put her through regression therapy and um at, i mean that'd been working with her for three years and by the third year i was like i think this is endometriosis because i i knew enough about it now and now i'm changing SIBO and i think it was SIBO as well um because they're so commonly linked and um she was going back and forth with them and they're like yeah it probably is endo but you know that they literally were just like we don't want to do the surgery and um that was the last time i saw her because she had an abusive family member oh, who wow. took her away and they told her that she, the pain was um the devil inside her and she was killed and i just don't think if she had been white that this would have happened i think she would have like she just was this went on for three years and they told her it was psychosomatic and they put her through regression therapy and and even with a lot of endometriosis you know a lot a lot of it you can't see a lot of her symptoms are very visible and but the gut symptoms are very very exactly. visible. i mean like like that screaming gut dysbiosis <laughs> right there and to say it was psychosomatic when you could see it wow and i you know it just it's you know it it breaks my heart to this day but i just i think you know had she not been black it would have been a very different story and it just yeah i just think that it's such a clear i think a lot of the time people think about race and they think about prejudice and they think it can't be that bad Mhm and I think the story this bad. story shows yes it can like this can literally lead to people falling through the gaps she had a cuz she she was type 1 diabetic so she had a team of a team around her and like yet still despite having a team of people like every time like this was an ongoing battle to put someone through regression therapy i mean yeah So well, you know, black women are also three times more likely than Caucasians to have fibroids. Well, the problem with that is is that since they're oftentimes dismissed um and and you know, they're not they're not listened to, they're brushed aside, they, nobody wants to take notice. Women with endo, black women with endo, I mean, it already in general, women with endo will see about 7 to 10 doctors. black women will see more than that because oftentimes they're misdiagnosed yeah absolutely and i and um i write in thinking that the pain like they're given less pain care less pain treatment yeah pain pain um pain medication just pain management on a whole because again remember the article i just mentioned that was only that that research study was in 4 years ago 4 years and even 4 years ago the 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 thought process was that black people did not feel pain that somehow their skins were thicker that somehow they did not respond to pain um they 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 didn't feel pain and therefore they didn't need the same as as their white counterpart and so pain management between blacks and whites across the board has not been equal And so you see women and and we all know like and I I I mean I talk about this all the time with a lot of people and I'm like the reason why 
you know, the number one reason for, for women missing work and missing school and missing college classes is pelvic pain usually linked to endo. And like, if, if we've got, if we've got the knowledge, if we've got the research, then why are we not doing anything about it? Mm, oh my <laughs> like gosh. we've got the information that we're going to yeah. let these women continue to suffer. And I, I find it so amazing because I was talking to a young lady um, and she was in her twenties, chronic pelvic pain. I, I, she called me to, to schedule a consult. And so as we were talking and getting ready to schedule, I'd, you know, ask for a little bit of her history. And I was like, did you ever have a formal diagnosis? She was like, no, but they were trying to give her a hysterectomy because that <gasps> was going to cure her pain. I'm like, she's mid twenties. Oh I just think that that is medical negligence. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I just, oh, it just, and, and I think, am I right in saying that black women are more likely to have um, unnecessary hysterectomies than white women? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I agree. I think it's negligent. I think it's, I, there's, and it, to me, it just seems like it, it's like insanity. Like it, with what you're saying, you know, we do have the research and, and yet we're just not, there's so much kind of, there's almost a myth of like, there's not enough research in endo. And it's like, well, there is research. I just don't think we're looking at it. Because even, and we, and we know that hysterectomy does not solve endometriosis because it grows outside the uterus. The endometrial lesions are outside the uterus. So you taking the, the, the uterus out does not solve anybody's problem. And I don't understand why there are still clinicians who are using that narrative to, with their clients. I don't understand. I'm like, you're giving them misinformation. And so then when these people continue to come, because now they've had a hysterectomy, they've never had any type of, of, of pelvic health they they will have they now have to recover from that they've they still have pelvic pain they still have all these other things going on so we haven't solved anything if anything we've we've just added to the mix yeah and i imagine the scarring and the adhesions as a result of a hysterectomy is huge Mm -hmm. which is obviously yeah i mean endo will just love to grab onto the adhesions and just make it so much worse Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in. So you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. So if you know you're due on, you might want to start wearing your period patch 24 hours beforehand just so that your muscles begin to relax and you're less likely to have really bad cramps. To find out more about BU, you can just head to the link in my show notes or go to www.buonline.co.uk. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis symptom tracker. If you kind of feel a bit overwhelmed by your pain and your symptoms and you really just don't know where to start with managing them, then tracking your symptoms over a couple of months or even just a month to see what your triggers might be could be really helpful. I've put together a free download that helps you track your pain, your mood, your brain fog, uh, your bloating, where you are in your cycle, your eating habits, your stress levels, so many different things 
um, in a really simple and effective way. If you'd like to try it out, um, obviously it's free. Just head to the show notes, follow the link and you can get your own copy. So on the subject of endo, can you give us like an overview on like the connection between endometriosis and pelvic pain and the pelvic floor? We we had um, Hiba Shahid, who's an Australian um, pelvic floor physio, talk about it, but it was like, gosh, I mean, 13 months ago, if not longer. And so for any new listeners who haven't heard that episode, it would be really good to sort of give an overview because especially from the UK like pelvic floor physiotherapy just may have never come across your path yeah absolutely so like I was mentioning earlier endometriosis is is a disease process whereby tissue that's similar to the endometrial lining of the uterus grows outside of the uterus the problem with that is is that in growing outside of the uterus, there's a lot of systemic inflammation that's kind of created as a result of all this. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to, for instance, you know, and I'll talk about like the bowels and the bladder and stuff like that. And there's no correlation with the tissue having to be on the organ specifically, but just even being in and around the area, you know, when we talk about just connective tissue and we talk about fascia and we know that the thoracic fascia, for example, is continuous. And so there's a lot of connections there are a lot of fascial connections in and around the pelvis, um, you know, that, that are kind of coming from the abdomen. And so if we've got that and those endometrial lesions and they're just kind of like attaching onto everything and we've got that inflammation, what we start to create is a systemic process. And it just kind of builds and builds and builds. One of the things that research has shown is like, because of this inflammation, there's a histamine response that's also created in the body. So kind of think for those of you, for example, who are allergic to bees, (laughs) you get stung by a bee. There are some of us who get stung by a bee and it's just annoying. And you just pull the little stinger out and you go along about your business. And there's some of us who get stung by a bee that end up going to like this whole anaphylaxis. And there are some people's bodies who will respond even more vigorously to this type of systemic inflammation than others. Um, But as a result, we have all these cascade of chemical events, hormonal events, and basically neurological events, because pain is really occurring in the nervous system that are, that's causing this, this feeling of pelvic pain, which may or may not be limited to just, you know, pain with intercourse. So for a lot of people who are familiar with pelvic pain, that is one of their common symptoms, but we may end up getting, you know, pain just constantly in and around the vulva, the genitals. Um, We may start to have pain that's kind of in the superpubic region around the bladder. Mm -hmm. Uh, We may start to have rectal pain. We may have difficulties now as a result of the inflammation, the adhesions, we may have difficulties now with things like urinating because endo and, and, and interstitial cystitis, also kind of term bladder pain syndrome, are like, they call them the evil twins. And mm-hmm. it's like, they, they really, they really evil. kind of are evil. <laughs> you know, like I try to find a nice way of putting it. And I'm like, yeah, no, there's none. Um, but, but really what's happening is they play off of each other. 
And so you can have endo and because of all this inflammation and because of this response, it just kind of stirs the pot. And so now you're having pain in other organs. So you can be having pain in and around the bladder. You can be having pain in and around the rectum. Also with regards to the inflammation and everything that's going on, that kind of can transcend outside of the pelvis. So now we know that a lot of people, I think there was a research article that said about 90% of people initially diagnosed with endo have gut issues. Yeah, that rings a bell as well. And I mean, you know, I've just finished my training in SIBO and every um, client that I've had tested so far has come back positive, including myself. And I really think we need to, I think IC needs to be taken into account as soon as someone is diagnosed with endometriosis. And I also think they should be tested for SIBO. I think they should be screened because SIBO has a massive effect on um, anxiety and nutrient absorption and energy. And it's just just the body's ability to heal because now that you've not, now that you've got, got that diagnosis, your body, if you can't absorb nutrients, your body can't mend and heal the way that it needs to. And so again, it's like this, this perpetual cycle. So we can't, we can't absorb the nutrients. We can't heal. We've got this inflammatory response. So not being able to address it means that it continues to worsen. And then it's this repetitive cycle. Um, and unfortunately for people who are diagnosed with endo, that's not something that is being addressed the gut issues, gut health, you know, just that holistic, I mean, even beyond just being holistic, we know that it, we know that it's correlated. So why are we not doing it? You know, it's, it's kind of easy to say, and I've told people, I I kind of tell people this all the time, you are what you eat. You know, you, you can't, you can't like, even with athletes, you can't out train a horrible diet. So (laughs) what, why would you, you know, just do the right thing make sure that you're fueling your body the way you need to, because then, you know, it'll save off injuries. It'll do this. And we, 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 we hear it with athletes. We can kind of see it and it, and it makes sense. But then when it comes to other systemic issues, why doesn't it not make sense? Why would we not want to fuel our bodies, nourish our bodies appropriately so that we can heal better and, and fight off these things it like, to me, it's just a common sense thing, you know, and especially dealing with endo and knowing the relationship between endo and, and the gut and how the the inflammation continues to proliferate as a result of of the endometriosis and and that process. I would think that, you know, that would be a natural course of care, but unfortunately for a lot of women, like if I'm seeing them, you know, and I'm telling them about nutrition, sometimes it's the first time a lot of them are hearing that. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, like, have you observed resistance to um, nutrition and endometriosis within healthcare? Because I've ser- I certainly have noticed a lot of resistance. And before I trained as a women's health coach, I worked within endometriosis um, charities, and there's sort of a there's a refusal to discuss it. Have you like observed that, or like like it's hippie, or like it's a myth, and it's it's not accurate? I don't know necessarily in the endo population that I've been seeing or in, in the, within the community, but I do think that with regards to traditional medicine, yeah, it is. And because we don't, you know, 
medication pharmaceutical pharmaceuticals will cure all. Um, and I think that that's been the commonplace, you know, you know, standard of, of thinking and, and it's just continued. And so we're like, yeah, we just need drugs and there's a drug for that. So let's just do it that way. Cause that's what works, but it's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and it hasn't. So why are we continuing to do the same thing? But I think that a lot more people as women become more knowledgeable, as women become more empowered because they're learning these things and they're not even learning it from their physicians, you know, they're learning it from health coaches. They're learning it in their community. They're learning it from people like you and myself that, that are just shouting it to the rooftops and trying to help women become more aware. And then they're trying, they're starting to take control as best they can of their lives to make some of those changes because they're not getting it in traditional healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And so going back to what you were mentioning with IC and and GI issues do you I mean in your experience as a physio would you say that something like nutrition for example if you took me as an example um I have IC and I have histamine intolerance um so I'm have I've got a pelvic floor physiotherapist and obviously changing my changed my diet but could the the you know a tight pelvic floor and adhesions be the cause of GI problems and bladder pain without it being something like histamine or an intolerance? Could it be solely pelvic floor problems or, or is there more to it? I think there's going to be a little bit more to it, but certainly a tight pelvic floor, whenever, whenever we're looking at a quote unquote tight pelvic floor, um, we're really talking about the muscles being hypertonic. So they're, they're overly active. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is that when you look at that, those muscles, one of the best ways to describe it, if the muscles are really tight and they start to kind of cut off, like, you know, circulation in the area. So they're, they're so tight, kind of think of squeezing something, you know, nothing really flows well. So they're cutting off the circulation of the smaller blood vessels. So now you're, they're, they're going to be less oxygenated. If they're less oxygenated, now we're subject to this chemical reactions that kind of elicit a pain response. And because they continue to, to be tied, it, again, it, that little feedback loop, right? So we, we end up kind of getting this cycle of pain. The problem with pain and inflammation is it just does not stay put. It doesn't say, well, you know, I'm just going to hang out here. You know, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to hang on in your pelvic floor. I know the bladder is over there. I'm just going to leave him alone, you know, because it just, it, 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 it's in the, it gets to be in the whole area. The other thing is, is because of the way your body perceives pain, because that's at a neurological level. So your, your body gets a signal normally and your body, there are little receptors that can tell your body as a message is going to the brain. Hey, this is painful. Hey, this is not, you know, I put my hand on a stove and it's hot. Mm -hmm. Ooh, hot stove. It burns that registers versus, you know, I put my hand on something that was maybe a little cold, not, not numbingly cold, but it's like different sensation and you can register the sensation, but those receptors can say, Hey, that's not painful. It might be a little bit uncomfortable, but not painful. But when you've got this constant cycle of inflammation, what happens is that those responses and those signals just become, you know, amplified. 
And so what would have been, you know, probably just of a discomfort or just something to be aware of then becomes something that is painful and uncomfortable and that and intolerable. And it, it just amplifies that whole system. So one of the, um, Laura Mosley, who is one of the premier pain scientists in the world, had given a great example. And he likened our body and our body's response to pain kind of like an alarm system. So you go into your house and you come in there. If you, know, if you go into your house, you're walking around your house, your alarm doesn't go off. Like you might come through the door and the door might chime. Or, you know, if, if a, a wasp flies into the house, the alarm doesn't go off because it, everything is calibrated. Like, you know, we, we know it's okay. It doesn't go off every time someone comes into the house. It's meant to go off if there is a burglar. Now, if it's not functioning well, though, like the dog could be walking in the house and the alarm could be going off. Like the window could open just so you can get some fresh air and the alarm is going off. So now stimulus stimuli that would normally not have elicited a response then begins to elicit this crazy response and the body starts to go crazy. And that's what's happening with pain. So when we have this inflammation, it just doesn't stay in this one area going, yep, I'm just going to hang out right here. You know, and, and when you look at the pelvis, anybody that has seen pelvic anatomy, they're real comfortable in there. Those pelvic organs are like kind of like they're like BFFs. So, you know, the bladder is right in front of the uterus, which is right in front of the rectum. Like everybody's nice and cozy. So it's kind of hard then to, 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 to think that if there's any inflammation in that area, that you're not going to get some symptoms at those respective organs. And similarly, because the intestines are right above, again, any inflammation in that area then can expand beyond there going into the gut and so on. So it's, it's one of those things. I, I think it's very fascinating um, mm. how it all happens and how so many things then can become wrapped up into this one diagnosis, you know, cause it kind of just starts off as one thing. We've got endo, we've got pelvic pain. Oh, wait, I've got diarrhea because I've got SIBO or I've got bloating or I've got this going, oh, wait, I've got urgency. Like I'm going to the bathroom frequently, or maybe, you know, I can't go to the bathroom. Like I try to go pee and nothing comes out, you know? So now you've got all these other symptoms as a result of this one condition. Yeah. And what do you like, so this is a really specific example, but I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like specific, specific examples can be helpful. So for example, with me, my endo is under control. I don't have um, painful periods anymore. They've been on, it's been under control for about three years, but my bladder pain has progressively gotten worse and so has my pain during sex um, to the point where it was, it, it's started to get better since doing um, physio, but it was like borderline vaginismus. So how do you see that sort of, working because the you know I I eat a very anti-inflammatory diet I, I you know follow an anti-inflammatory lifestyle so is it sort of like now the the sort of years or decades of being in chronic pelvic pain from the endo has had such an impact on the bladder that even though I sort of addressed what's going on with the endo there there's like an aftermath of like bladder problems you can but also when we look at 
I see, for example. So typically with endometriosis, we encourage people to follow an anti-inflammatory diet. When it comes to IC, we also want to amend that a little bit in that we want to take out acidic foods and we want to take out potassium because using those particular types of foods adds to the inflammatory process. And so those may be things that someone could be consuming with a anti-inflammatory diet for endo, but may still, you know, they might still be consuming them, you know, if, and not know. So we want to address the, the nutrition to make sure that we're doing everything possible to kind of curb that inflammatory response. The other thing is, is that, again, when we look at the pelvic pain, and in your case, you're working with, with a, a physical therapist, but we want to make sure that we can start to get those tissues to calm down and to relax. Because again, those organs are very cozy in there and the bladder sits right in front of the uterus. So if we want to make sure that we're not having that tightness, we're not having those issues. Like you said, you complained also of vaginismus because when we're having pain and we've had it for so long, it takes a mental toll on people. Mm. There's a lot of anxiety involved. There's a lot of stress involved. Add to that normal day-to-day stress, you know, <laughs> life, work, kids, relationships, mm-hmm. parents, family, you name it, you know, like, and you're just like, your body's like, please send me to an island, put me in exile. Oh my <laughs> you God. Know? Yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> it's like, can I please go into exile? Because it's just too much. And so... For some people, it may just start to manifest in other areas. And again, with the nutritional component, if we haven't also addressed the acidity in the diet, then that may exacerbate um, the, the IC. But just in general, there's so many different components that you can have times where people tend to calm down and their symptoms start to calm down. And then for whatever reason, you know, things start to ramp back up. And and in those cases, then we need to stop and take a look at what's going on, not just symptomology, but I tell my clients, I'm like, listen, tell me, tell me everything. I need to know everything about everything. You know, I'm like, tell, give me all the goodies because there's probably something. And most often people don't, don't associate those things. So, you know, when they're talking to me about the financial stress or, you know, hubby and I had a fight, hubby and I have been having a hard time or, you know, the kids have been having a rough time or, you know, maybe they want to get pregnant, but they've been having such a tough time because of infertility and all this stress is just too much. Or, you know, they have, because nobody's family is perfect. So they've had some family issues, whatever it might be, that they may not necessarily associate the, you know, the issues that's going on with their siblings and their pelvic pain. Yeah. Or they might not associate the financial stress that they may have going on with their pelvic pain. And so oftentimes it, it just really is important to, to kind of stop and take a step back and look at everything and then kind of pick apart so we can see what truly can be contributing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. I, I noticed with my clients, like, some of the times when they feel their best is when they feel they've got some stress management techniques and when they suddenly have a flare-up it's almost always down to something stressful happening almost always more than you know something that they've eaten so yeah I completely agree with that um 
So I, I'm aware that we have to wrap up soon. So I just want to ask um, one more question because it's, it's one that I'm curious about and I get a lot of questions about it. Um, if you have pelvic pain, what would you say is like a good exercise? Because obviously we want to be exercising if, if we can. And um, I was speaking to, I don't know if you know the girls at Semaine, they've got like the two twins with endo and they've got a supplement, anti-inflammatory supplement for the week of your period. And um, they have just been told by their physio, like stop doing, uh, they, I don't know, their favorite thing is like cycling or spin or something. And they were like, oh, their physio told them it was the worst thing for them to do and they need to stop. And so like, and my physio was like, be careful with your, like, your ab exercises because I love doing sit-ups. So what kind of are like some good, especially aerobic exercises to get our heart rates up that aren't going to like send our pelvic floor into spasms? That's a really good question. Um, I think sometimes it's not necessarily always what you do, but how you do it. Um, swimming is great. You know, rowing is great. Um, stair climber ellipticals can be great. Oh, okay. I would shy away. I would shy away from um, from the bike only because if you already have pelvic pain and any genital pain, then what happens is sitting on that bike, especially you know those really hardcore spin people that just sit there <laughs> for like hours on end, and I'm going, how on earth do you do that? I sit there for five minutes and I feel like my my whole pelvis is gonna fall apart. Um, you know, like the, the seats are not the most comfortable. And so that can aggravate your your symptoms. So that's oftentimes why most people will say, you know, stay away from this, the, the bike if you have any type of chronic pelvic pain. As far as abdominal exercises go, I don't mind people doing core exercises. I do encourage people to do, to add rotation into their movements. So if you are working out just don't keep doing straight plane, sagittal plane movement. You want to add some rotation. For one, from a functional perspective, our normal day-to-day -day life does not involve moving in one plane alone. For two, we really want to make sure that we're strengthening globally. And then for three, tip, when, you, when you find people that are constantly in that straight plane, in that one plane, they tend to grip those muscles or grip certain muscles a lot more than others. And that gripping, that abdominal gripping can add to the pelvic issues. Um, for one, because those people tend not to be really good at controlling intra-abdominal pressures. But for two, there's a lot of tightness. There could be increased tightness of the fascia. It can just lend itself to more pelvic pain. Um, so I like people to do a lot of mobility work, a lot of relaxation exercises. If there's a particular workout that you do and you find it great, then so be it because everyone is going to be different. So sometimes it may be a little bit of trial and error to find what works for you. I love dancing and most people don't think of dancing as a workout, but some good salsa dancing. Yeah. You get a lot of good waist movement. <laughs> you get a lot of good core movement, good cardio workout. You look good because you got heels on, you know, <laughs> so that can be an and when you're doing that, you don't have time to think about the stresses of life. You're too busy trying to get your footwork down, so you know? Yeah. So it's, it, it can be a good release. I think dancing, belly dancing, cardio, um, belly dancing, sorry, salsa dancing, line dancing, these all could be great ways to just 
kind of get your mind off of, you know, just stress in general. Yeah. Um, and a great way to add cardio to, to your routines. Yeah, that's such a good idea. I actually found um, an app the other day that's like 10 minute dance. I don't know, like dance videos by like world famous dance teachers. So Ooh, I'm going to find nice. it again and download it and put it in the show notes um, because nice. I just didn't really think about like, yeah, I just didn't think about dance. And I know that, you know, aerobic exercise in like 10 minute intervals, sort of not going, I think, above 30 minutes is really good for lowering cortisol levels and boost endorphins which is obviously going to be really beneficial with um the community that we serve so that's yeah. so if helpful. you watch Grey's Anatomy think of the 30 second dance party okay I have it I'm has. gonna google it <laughs> <laughs> 30 second dance party you know like it's when you're stressed out it's always good to take a 30 second dance party and just start rocking out you know forget your stresses even if only for 30 seconds so and I think that's one of the things that because when you think about dancing you know you think about going out with your girlfriends or something like that like are you thinking about anything else yeah. other than the music you know yeah. so it's a good way it's a good way to just get your fitness in as well as take your mind off stuff okay perfect thank you so much I'm gonna let you go I know you've got another appointment but it has been so wonderful to have you on and lovely to know that we've done the same course together and yeah. we're on the same page and yeah just really fighting for this community and thank you for everything you're doing and for sharing your knowledge with us thank you so much for having me this was fun and I greatly appreciate it for those out there with endo I always love to leave people with the fact that one you're not alone and two, you are strong. You are strong, you are capable, and this is not a fight that you have to do by yourself. No, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I'm gonna put, oh, actually, before I, before we go, can you just let everyone know where they can find you? Yeah, so you can find me on my website, www.jmm, M as in Mary, M as in Mary, so jmmhealthsolutions.com, on Facebook at JMM Health Solutions on Instagram at the pelvic perspective on YouTube at JMM health solutions. Um, yeah. And I have a podcast called fueling her a woman's guys guide to wellness. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google podcasts, and a whole host of other podcasts. So yeah, check us out. Okay. So many options and resources there. I'm going to put them all in the show notes. Thank you again so much for coming on. And I hope you have a really lovely week. Thank you. You do the same. Take care. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe really truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis this episode was produced by the pod farm whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world 